0: And so, my last boyfriend, he said he wanted a rusty trombone, and so I took him literally. <laughs> last weekend, you were like the guy in the music man. <laughs> <laughs> oh, hold on, I think somebody's here.
2: What are you doing, Dr. Wolfenstein?
0: I'm Skyping with my boyfriend, Dr. Yu, the deranged Hong Kong crime lord. We were just making a little sexy talk just now.
2: Uh, check, please. No,
0: no, no, stay here. I want you to get to know him a little. I'm a mad scientist. You're my lab assistant. He's my crime lord main squeeze. You two should talk. Honey, meet my assistant, Fleekor.
1: Gregor.
0: Hi, Fleekor. I was just about to tell him about our latest experiment.
1: You mean the one where we
2: sewed the four severed human heads onto ostrich necks?
0: Oh, you got the severed heads I sent. Yes, honey, they were great. But no, that's not the experiment that I mean. I mean the one where we made meatloaf out of human placenta and poo, and used mind control to make the villagers eat it. Mm. What's the big deal about that? Well, it's kind of gross. Sometimes, as a mad scientist, I I just like to be gross. Actually, when I'm in Japan, there's a poo curry I eat. It's very good. It is, huh? Hey, baby, do you mind just holding for a second?
3: No problem.
0: What is that? Do you think he really eats poo? Is this some kind of weird cultural thing? I don't know. Anyway, he is weird. I bet he does eat poo. I have to ask him. Hi, honey. It's me again. Hey, um, remember in November when we met in Osaka and we were totally kind of making out? You didn't eat poo that time, did you? I did. I remember going to the house of Curry Poo while I was waiting for your plane. Great. I mean, that's wonderful, honey. But, hey, I have to run. One of the ostrich men is waking up. Let's Skype again tomorrow, okay? I
2: can't wait. You made out with poo. You made out with Stop poo. Stop that. You're my
0: lackey. <laughs> You exist to serve me and oh my god I made out with poo. You know what? I should just never date. This was the most normal guy in the mad scientist section of eHarmony and he eats poo.
2: What do you think Neil Clark Warren eats? Ever notice that grin of his?
0: I'm going to drink three gallons of spring water and then spend the day in bed. You listen to this radio show about what is delicious and what is disgusting. And now he always gets the virgin boy egg breakfast at Denny's. Colin McEnroe.
3: Okay, first of all, there really is such a thing as a virgin boy egg. That is a delicacy in China. It is an egg which is boiled in the urine of prepubescent boys. I'm sorry, but that thing exists, and so do a lot of other things that we're going to talk about today, some of which will strike you as quite disgusting. There is... I am uh, uh, embarrassed or distressed to tell you a restaurant in Japan that does sell a curry, which is served in a kind of a simulated toilet bowl and which is prepared in such a way as to resemble uh, uh, in smell, taste and texture uh, poo. Um, and the reason that we know about things like that, and the fact that uh, if you, uh, the most expensive coffee bean in the world right now is a bean which is eaten by a palm civet and then excreted by the same palm civet, and then you make coffee out of that. Um, <clears throat> the reason we know about things like that partly is because of Alan Yu, uh, who is the chief of our. Alan McEnroe show, Hong Kong Bureau, and who appeared in that intro and who sends us things like that. And he suggested this show to me and Betsy Kaplan, a show kind of about what what disgust really means and where it comes from. Uh, and why we have a kind of an approach avoidance relationship to it. I mean, there are things that we find disgusting, but it's also kind of exciting uh, for us to think about maybe eating those things, uh, at least for some of us. And that also probably explains the incredible rise of these shows, like the Bizarre Foods show that's hosted by uh, Andrew Zimmerm or Anthony Bourdain, who's constantly trotting, maybe eating not quite so many disgusting foods, but certainly not shying away from them anyway. So it, we decided, yes we would explore where those tripwires lie and how they get kicked. Uh, And so uh, to do that with us, we have Bun Lai. He is a James Beard Foundation Award-nominated chef at Mia Sushi in New Haven, uh, which is the first sustainable sushi restaurant in the world, probably. And he has so many other things. He is a major leader in the world of rethinking food, rethinking our relationships to food, uh, probably rethinking the foods that we will need to eat and want to eat to get us through the next century or so. Um, And so he's not only a cooker of wonderful foods, Uh, at his New Haven restaurant, but he's internationally known as somebody who thinks deeply about food. Also joining us is Paul Rosin, Professor Emeritus of Psychology at the University of Pennsylvania. He's a former editor of the journal Appetite. And later on, we will be talking to um, someone uh, who is a microbiologist, writer, artist, and founding editor of Method Quarterly, who in fact has made cheese using bacteria from human armpits and toes and noses and stuff like that. So, I warned you, this is, you know, you may be faint of heart and you may not be able to listen to this show, but we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna take that chance that you can stay with us. So, Bun, uh, I'm going to begin with you uh, since you're in a New York radio studio, and maybe you can set this up and then Paul can help us analyze this a little bit. Can you describe some, I mean, I've eaten at your restaurant. I'm, when I'm there with my son, you will serve us insects and worms and, and invasive species and stuff like that, and we all always eat them, although I think my son mainly does it so he doesn't lose face in front of you um, but but I know this is a crusade for you and it's it's important to you it's not just um, a game that you're playing it's important but ma- can you describe a kind of food that you try to get people to eat in your restaurant that they resist eating
1: oh man uh, the insects that you're talking about uh, using fish like carp you know uh, so many people consider carp to be goldfish mm-hmm. um, weeds you know like not weed and and kudzu, um, even like plant-based sushi uh, originally, you know. I, I've had throughout the last two decades of my career, I've had so many people um, say say to me, man, this is not sushi, you know. Uh, and, uh, you know, say stuff like, wait, why don't you make something like traditional like a, a California roll?
3: Hmm. But there's so there's that. There's what their expectation is for sushi. But then there are the other things where you really are kicking a disgust reflux, uh, reflex right? There's and maybe reflux too. But um, so mm-hmm. that where people are sort of saying, I can't eat that. That's a bug. That's a worm. That's an Asian flying carp. That's that's a thing I don't eat. And I mean, do you probe that at all with them and sort of try to figure out where that's coming from?
1: Yeah, you know, uh, I, I know, as a fact, that uh, uh, it's about exposure. Mm-hmm. So it's a combination of exposure and knowledge um leads to familiarity and then eventually uh, uh for a lot of people uh, enjoyment. Mm-hmm. Um we we most of us don't diverge from the way we grew up eating. Right. It's basically what it boils down to. It. But uh for a lot of people if you expose them to something new say like a uh like a black soldier fly and you tell them that uh, it tastes really nutty or mm-hmm. a, a cricket that it tastes a whole lot like a shrimp, mm-hmm. and then you also tell them why it's important to eat it as well, like sustainability knowledge, um, it changes their mind. Mm-hmm. So I've seen a lot of people come and eat at Mia's where they would sit in the corner of the sushi bar and, and really look cynical and be cynical and even not be happy, and I'll go over and I'll, I'll talk to them about it mm-hmm. and have them proselytize by the end of uh, uh, dinner.
3: Although you've also seen people get up and walk out, right?
1: well that that used to happen every single day I mean, that's, <laughs> that's something that uh, I, I'm used to um but uh, I also know that uh, a lot of these people just don't know any better you know mm-hmm. um because if you you think about uh, what used to be repulsive to us uh and food that we ate from nature you know, thousands and thousands of years ago it was it was food that would make you sick mm-hmm. you know like uh uh a carcass, you know, uh, human beings can't eat rotting dead animals like a hyena can. So that would gross us out and probably make our gag reflexes go. But ironically, today, it's the food that makes us sick that we should be grossed out by that we are most powerfully attracted to, you know, the pizza, the hamburgers, the fries, et cetera.
3: Right. So, so our, gross,
1: the, our gross sensors are completely out of whack.
3: Right, exactly. The things that look great to us are probably the things that are going to clog our hearts and hurt us and make us sick. So uh, let's go to Paul Rosen on this. So uh, let's maybe we can pull apart a little bit of what's happening here. So just said an interesting thing, which is that some of the wiring that we've got is – just that we've, we eat the foods that we've always eaten, it's cultural conditioning, uh, and some of it is wired even more deeply. It's, it's based somehow or other on some notion that the disgust is a useful, evolutionarily adaptive reflex, that th- this is our body, in some cases, telling us, don't eat that, it'll make you sick, and our body is right. I think that's what most people believe, that, that that's where disgust comes from. How true or not true is that, Paul Rosen?
4: Well, some of it's true. Uh, uh, It's not clear whether disgust is part of our innate equipment. Uh, Like, for example, the projection of bitter is inherent in humans. It's present in newborns. Disgust doesn't appear until about four or five years of age. Uh, That doesn't mean it's not innate, but it may be a universal acquisition or it may be part of our genome. It's unique to humans. It's not present in primates other than humans. So we don't really know how it got there, but it does seem to serve the function in our history of keeping us away from foods that are contaminated because a, a big signal of disgust is the smell of decay. We tend to avoid that. So the, the point that Boone was making is that some our world has changed so much that some of the things that worked for us uh more than 10,000 years ago, say, before agriculture, um, don't work so well anymore. We love sweet tastes, we love fat textures, and we reject, uh, we find offensive almost everything that isn't in a very small category of animal products. We eat a wide range of plant foods, but if you think about Americans, for example, we eat three mammals, right? Mm-hmm. Lamb, pork, pig, and cow. And there are over 4,000 mammals. And we're only eating three. The rest of them we find disgusting. And we also find non-muscle disgusting. So a pig or cow eye, a cow for most Americans, a cow kidney, uh, are disgusting. So it's actually a very small number of animal foods that we actually eat and enjoy. And it's a larger number in China, but even there, most things are off-limits. So um, where that come, so that may have been useful in some sense or other a long time ago, but now it's restricting the foods that we can eat. Now insects, for example, are not decaying; they don't smell like decay. They're perfectly good food. I've personally eaten many kinds of insects. I've eaten at Noma, the great restaurant in Copenhagen. I've eaten a dish with the green sauce and live ants walking around in it. Now, a lot of people rejected that, but I tried it. It was okay. and mm-hmm. it was great, but it was good. So um, one of the issues is that some of the best foods now that are sustainable, that are things that would make the world, the environment better, would be very nutritious, are off limits because most of these Westerners find them disgusting. And what BUN is about is
3: trying to change that. So let's go back to Bun on this, and you know, you mentioned a soldier fly. Okay, so um, you know, there's a lot of people. I don't know if there's a lot of people. There's people who will eat a cricket, you know, because it seems like you could fry it up; it'll be all crunchy, you know, or cicada or something like that. Um, and and maybe some people would chew up a worm. I I, I don't know. I mean, I have actually at your behest, uh, and but you know, you get to fly. And bun, I don't know. Do you do you find that people have? I mean, fly is like a whole separate problem. So when you're trying to get somebody to believe that a soldier fly tastes nutty, I think you said, you know, what, what, what do you feel pushing back at you from, from the potential diner?
1: Yeah, it's, uh, um, everything that we feel like it, uh, we have an em- emotional response to eating insects, uh, in uh, in you know, Western European and influenced culture. And, uh, yeah, People are disgusted by the idea of eating flies because you think of flies as house flies, which also carry disease. Mm-hmm. But uh, it's also a misunderstanding, so it's a knowledge thing as well. So it's an exposure thing, and it's a knowledge thing because after people do try it, uh, they think across the board people like it.
3: Right. So um, uh, educate us a little bit more about the soldier fly. So, yeah, I think most people are sort of thinking about flies they carry disease. So why is the soldier fly okay to eat? Uh, because uh, black soldier flies do not carry dis- disease.
1: Um, they they generally are not eating carrion. They're eating. Uh, we raise we raise them ourselves. Mm-hmm. Um, using uh, plant based compost. Um, they do taste really really good. Um, to you don't have to bend your mind in order to enjoy the flavor because it's not it's not like an exotic experience once you put it in your mouth. Um, and also. Um, The information behind it is it's highly nutritious. It's healthier for you to eat than beef, for sure, you know, and much better for the environment as well.
3: So, Paul Rosin, one of the things... One of the reasons that maybe initially somebody coming to Mia might be scared to eat a fly. We should say, by the way, you can eat all kinds of very un, unthreatening, unfrightening, uh, unchallenging things at Mia. They have a wide-ranging menu, and you can eat all vegetarian if you want. You can eat all kinds of stuff, and uh, it's all delicious. Or or you can take an adventure with bun the way we're doing this right now. But but anyway, um, you know, when people are uh, hear that, that bun has uh, soldier flies to serve them, this isn't— this is a different kind of disgust, I think, because it's not that the fly itself is disgusting so much as that the fly, we, the fly strikes us as something we're not in control of, that the fly has landed on poop, the fly has landed on a dead possum, and now we're going to eat the fly. And I, I don't know where in our th- – if there's a kind of thinking that that represents, Paul.
4: There is – a. Uh, you can tell people. I'm sure Boone does that this fly was raised in such and such a way. But that's helpful. But people sort of deeply think that flies are offensive no matter how you prepare them. So, for example, we've done a study where we take a cockroach, dead cockroach. We dip it into a glass of juice, take it out immediately. There's no cockroach left. You know, It doesn't lose a leg or anything. Mm-hmm. And we say, will you drink that? And people say no of course reliably are these americans and then we say why not and the typical answer is well cockroaches are disease vectors you know we don't know where they've been just what you said so we say okay we'll repeat that with some new juice but a sterilized cockroach This comes out of an autoclave it's just, it's safer than your fork mm-hmm. and we drop it in take it out and they still refuse it that doesn't make any difference at all there's something inherently inherent about cockroaches now as, to follow up on what Bun was saying, um, the cockroach is the most disgusting of the common insects. And that's probably because we have a sense that it's filthy. Uh, but to take, go to the other extreme, there's butterflies. We love butterflies. They're not disgusting, but they are disgusting to eat.
3: Uh-huh.
4: Nobody wants to eat a butterfly. Either. So it's not that the, just that the animal is disgusting. Is that In that case, you're killing an animal that you sort of think is beautiful.
3: Bun, did I hear you chuckling during the cho- the cockroach uh, experiment description?
4: Uh yeah,
1: no, so I definitely was. What were you
3: chuckling about?
1: Um, I don't know. I was just having a a gut reaction myself. <laughs> yeah, it, to the, it, it, to the, to the, the, the whole cockroach thing because I'd feel the same way too. And uh, when you were listing off earlier, you know, uh, on the show, all these different things that people eat around the world. Mm-hmm. I was thoroughly disgusted as well. So. <laughs> wait a minute. Well, let me
4: just say about this, that the black soldier fly, which Bun is cooking, and by the way, Bun, I'd love to get some information about your place and visit it.
1: Yeah, um, I can't wait.
4: The black soldier fly is of particular interest because it is, first of all, they have a very short breeding cycle, so they're easy mm-hmm. to get. You eat the larva, okay? Mm-hmm. Not this fly. And, and, and you can get them quickly. The other thing about black soldier flies, which is a plus and a minus, is you can feed them on food waste. In other, in other words, for many insects, you have to raise them on flour or something that we could actually eat. The nice thing about black soldier flies is you can raise them on things that we don't eat, including, food wa- including body waste, but also just food waste. So they're very good for the environment because they're taking things that would just be spoiled and making them into good food for us. So I've never eaten a black soldier fly. I've eaten a lot of other things, and I'm really excited that Bun is able to get people to eat it. Now, in all work, it seems that the best way to get people to eat insects is not to put them an insect in front of them, but to use insect flour, which is made in a number of places in the world. It's used in the insect bars that you can buy now, insect uh, snack bars. Um, you, you grind up the insects. You say you cook your cricket, you get dry, you dry them, you grind them up into powder. It tastes a little nutty, but not very strong, and you put it in instead of flour, maybe 10% insect instead of flour. People won't taste a, a major difference. And if you can get them to eat that, that gets them on the road to thinking that it's okay to eat insects.
3: I want to go back to something here. Wait a minute. Like, I ate worms yeah. for you, but you wouldn't eat Paul's, you wouldn't drink Paul's cockroach margarita? You by the way,
1: you know, I, I definitely would, but I was kind of chuckling because I was chuckling because of my gut reaction to that, you know, oh, the whole man. image. And Paul was completely right. I know that cockroach is clean, but because it's a cockroach,
3: a cockroach, all right.
1: Um, but also, uh, I, you know, uh, without powderizing, um, like say a cricket or insects, I've had experiences where I've worked with kids uh, many, many times over, where, you know kids aren't reluctant to eat something and then one kid will try it and Mm -hmm. then the rest of them will follow suit just like dominoes so how your peers feel about it
3: Mm
1: -hmm. uh, has a lot to do with it uh, as well
3: let and, and and so uh, so that gets to culture. We've got a call from Arthur in Middletown who wants to uh bring up something that probably uh won't make one all that happy uh but as an example maybe of like a- your peers are a culture at some point, and a culture is your peers. Here's Arthur, hi, you're on the air.
2: hey, what's going on,
3: guys? Well, you know
2: <laughs> I just had pizza before this call too, so this is great um. So, yeah, there's actually uh, – it's funny how we were talking about this. Uh, Some of my peers had actually tried to have me eat this uh, Filipino delicacy. Uh, It's called balot. And I don't know if you guys know what that is, but uh, balot Mm -hmm. is an unborn duck fetus. Mm -hmm. And uh, Mm -hmm. they had me – they were about to have me try this when I was in the Philippines a while back. And uh, I just turned vegetarian. And (laughs) when I found out about it, I was like, no, 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 no thank you. So – you're talking about, I, I mean, I even think that, like, having bacon on, like, cupcakes was kind of weird and kind of gross. But lot to me, just, ugh, bleh,
3: disgusting. So I've seen, hmm. I've seen pictures of this. And, and I, you know, Bun, just to, back to the, kind of your point, though. So there's, there's some ra- maybe rational basis for this, but there's a lot of irrational basis for it, too. It's an egg. The thing that's inside the egg got a little bit older. People who wouldn't hesitate to eat a duck egg. Well, it got a little bit older. Suddenly we're not going to eat it.
1: Mm, it's 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 beyond that though. Um, it's like nothing we we were exposed to in this culture. I had the bullet um, experience myself. I br- I bought about twenty years ago. I bought uh, a few bullet. I sat around um, a table for lunch at Mia's. Uh, me and two of my pals. They were afraid to, of, of peeling it because they thought like some duck would pop out. So I was like, "Man, you guys are being silly." And I slowly peeled it and. The tip of the egg came off and a little pinky sized duck head, fully formed duck head popped out. And I just freaked and I jumped <laughs> on my friend and he ran down the hallway. And it was literally the most revolting, one of the most revolting experiences I've ever had in my life. Now, do I think it's wrong to be blunt? Um, No, I don't really think so at all. Um, but I don't know if you can get me to eat that again. I didn't eat it. I I had to turn my head when I brought it to the garbage so I, I couldn't see it and just kind of brush it into,
3: the, you know,
4: roll it into the garbage.
3: All right. So um, the, you yeah. go ahead, Paul. Yeah. So uh,
4: what, one of the issues is almost everything that's disgusting is of animal or animal origin. And the more obvious it's of animal origin, as in the example of the duck head, the more reluctant we are. So Americans don't tend to eat meat that is obviously, especially mammal meat, that is obviously part of an animal. We eat a cut like a pork chop, right? In Europe, for example, you're more likely to see in the market an animal like a full full animal carcass or, say, a, 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 a rabbit with a fur on in a butcher, we go out of our way in this country to, make, to make, establish a distance between the animal stuff you're eating and the actual source of the animal. And if people are reminded of it in the extreme like the duckhead, they, even meat eaters are reluctant. They don't want to look at slaughterhouses. You know, they, They're not thinking cow killing when they eat a piece of meat, of, of beef, though vegetarians are. And right. it's in the back of the mind of everyone, but it's far enough in the back that we're not thinking of killing animals when we're eating meat. And, and now insects are different because we don't mind killing insects except for butterflies. I mean, we swat flies, we do all of that. So it's not the killing there, it's the idea of what they are. So there are two ways to be disgusted. one is that you're in the act of killing, which all eating of is killing, right? Whenever you eat a plant too, you're killing it, you're mashing it up. So we don't think of it that way, unless it's pushed in our face, like we see a whole fish maybe on our plate for some people, or you see the whole chicken. Uh, so the the um, we push in the back that in the background, but that's different from the insects, which we're not concerned about killing an ant and eating it. We're just offended by eating it. And there is a place that one knows called the Nordic Food Lab in Copenhagen, which I work with which has been working on what Bunn is doing, which is making insects delicious, whole insects. That is, instead of working with insect flour, they're making, you know, they have bee larvae, ceviche, and all sorts of things like that. And I go there once a year, and they always present me with their latest um, invention. So they're taking the approach that Bunn has. Let's make insects delicious. And the other approach is let's sneak it in through the flour. Uh, Both of them could work.
3: All right, we're going to take a break. In our third and final segment, we're going to go into our second segment, and we're going to add Christina. In our third and final segment, though, I want to come back to what you're saying because I think there's a third element to this, and it's there uh, in the Philippine uh, baby duck story, which is the notion of the other, the other kind of person, that there are people who are not like us and they eat other stuff, and that freaks us out at some other subliminal or maybe not so subliminal level. But let's do that towards the end of the show. Take a break, come back, talk to Christina about well, sort of human cheese,
4: Oh, yeah, I see, though, boo, boo,
3: Oh, anybody can eat that food schmooze stuff. Chili? Come on. We're eating eggs boiled in the urine of virginal boys, and if we want to make an omelet out of them... Uh, like a cheese omelet? Well, uh, that's when our next uh, guest comes in. Uh, this uh, that would be Christina Agapakis, uh, microbiologist, writer, artist, and founding editor of *Method Quarterly*, a magazine about science in the making. She's also the creative director at Ginkgo BioWorks, and most significantly for our purposes, she made cheese uh, in a way that involved human beings maybe a little bit more than they're involved in making cheese ordinarily, although. Obviously, they are involved. Uh, So, Christina Agapakis, I hope I'm I'm saying your name right. Am I saying your name right? Oh, that's right. Yeah, Yeah, you got it. All right. So uh, I'm just going to let you tell your own story. What kind of cheese did you make that we're going to put in our virgin boy urine duck egg omelet, or whatever that (laughs) is? Well, uh,
5: it's a project that I worked on uh, about five years ago now. uh, I'm a microbiologist. I'm really interested in, in how... You know, the human body interacts with microbes and, and microbial communities. And I was working with an odor artist named Kissel Tolas and, and she's interested in things like that are stinky and kind of gross, and maybe we wouldn't want them uh, every, every day, but, you know, but she wants us to think more uh, intellectually about bad smells. So the bad smell that we were looking at is body odor, and it turns out a lot of body odor, human body odor, is related to the microbes that live on the skin. And when you dig into some of that chemistry and the biology of the microbes and the smells that make your armpits or your feet smell, what you find is that there's actually a really, really close similarity between the bacteria that make your body smell and the bacteria that make cheese flavor and the cheese smell. Uh, So what we did in order to kind of Explore this connection between our bodies and our food as we made our own cheese using bacteria as starter cultures that we collected from from the human body. So we we got Q tips between people's toes and their armpits and their mouths and belly buttons, and we used that bacteria that we collected to make cheese uh, and, and to make very interesting cheese flavors that way.
3: And this may explain why well, anyway, no one comes to your cocktail parties. But um, <laughs> one one question that people would have right away was, mm, bacteria from somebody's armpit, bark bacteria from somebody's feet. Um, how do you know that's safe? How do I know... That it's kind of like bun. We were talking about eating soldier flies a little while ago, uh, and so maybe if you know a little bit more about the soldier fly and where it came from, you feel a little bit better about it. How do you reassure people that you can eat cheese that, that's come this traveled this particular road?
5: So what we said is it's it's not cheese for eating; it's cheese for thinking. So it's definitely it's food for thought. So we we couldn't guarantee that the cheese is going to be safe because we didn't have, you know, uh, the the way to really analyze that bacteria and make sure that it was healthy. Um, But what we could do, we could say, is, is show in real cheeses. Um, like real artisan cheeses that are made, like how similar some of these bacteria already are. Um, So when you look uh, deeply at the cheese and the microbes that live in its rind, you do often find bacteria that are really close cousins to the bacteria on the skin. Um, So, yes, you know, we we definitely had a don't try this at home kind of policy, and and I only tasted a little bit, uh, and and I didn't get sick, but we couldn't guarantee that it would be safe. Right.
3: But you did eat some of the cheese.
5: I did try. You know, you have to when you're you're making
3: you go to all that work. Why? How could you not? So, exactly. So, uh, Paul Rosen, first of all, we should say that, I mean, a lot of food, uh, a lot of food preparation around the world involves some kind of spoilage. Rot, rotting, decaying fermentation and, and it, 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 if it's the one that you're not familiar with, that it looks really gross, uh, but there's probably something that you're eating in your regular diet that doesn't bother you at all that is part of this process a process that, we, that might seem kind of unsanitary
4: No, that's, you're, you've got it exactly right, every culture does some things with their food uh, usually uh, fermenting that uh, is specific and is is, delight, is delightful to them, and and offensive to most other cultures in the Western cultures, uh, Europe, uh, Western Europe, United States, Canada, a few other places. Cheese is a good example. It's it's rotted milk. Um, very commonly in Southeast Asia, this is the fish sauce, which is put on as a basic flavoring, like soy sauce, is rotted fish, and uh, so on. I mean, so, yes, we can get used to and love things that are disgusting, which is, I think, something you said at the beginning. this. Now, the people who appreciate this aren't thinking it's disgusting, mm-hmm. of course. Right. But it is possible to actually like something because it is disgusting. So, for example, if you eat an insect, if you force yourself to eat an insect, say, at a restaurant, you will brag about it
3: to mm-hmm. your friends. Yes. I mean,
4: that's what I eat.
3: Right. And and you know, and you're
4: saying I'm a very sophisticated uh, person who can really overcome my bodily rejection, you know, my disgust. And that's one way people get to do things like what Christine is talking about. Somebody uh, and Bun says somebody else does it, especially someone you admire. And you figure, gee, you know, I should do that, too.
3: Um, so, uh, Christina, I, I'm going to ask Bun about this too. But Christina, was part of your goal to do kind of what Paul's talking about—that that sort of if you if you start thinking about something differently, if you get used to it in a different way, if it has a different brain feel for you, maybe you really do change your attitude about something. Did you did you have some underlying hope of changing attitudes?
5: Yeah, absolutely. I think you know. Uh, we're starting to think of our bodies and the microbes that live in our bodies as an important part of our health. Um, and I think more and more people, especially Americans now maybe that used to think that fermentation was disgusting are now seeing uh, probiotics and fermented foods as a, as a normal part of their diet. And in fact, a really healthy part of their diet. Um, but there seems like there was kind of a disconnect between those two things. So, you know, if you, you, you know, people were willing to bring more bacteria into their lives, but were still kind of grossed out by by the bacteria that were on their skin, the bacteria that are their own part of their body. Um, so what we found was when people just heard about the cheese, like uh, if I just told the story, everyone would be, like, really grossed out and, and you know, uh, just saying, oh, no, 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 I would never want to eat that. That's the worst thing I can imagine. Um, but then if you actually showed them the cheese that we had made, uh, they got to smell it. They realized that the cheese just smells and looks like a regular cheese, um, and they were able to make that make a new connection, think about it differently, and all of a sudden they weren't as grossed out. They were more curious. They were asking questions about how those flavors are being made, um, what how cheese making works with different kinds of microbes, and, and getting into the all those really interesting details and getting more interested in the stinkiness of cheeses around the world.
3: All right, so, and I want to get to Jim in Springfield in just a second here, but before that, so Bun, this is sort of, this is something that you kind of do with people at your restaurant, right? Don't you sort of offer tiny free samples of things that people kind of are wrinkling their noses at and kind of letting them acculturate to it?
1: Yeah, I've been doing that, uh, man, since the beginning of my career, and and these days I just incorporate it into – our set menus or multi-ingredient uh, platters, mm. and uh, and then people are tend to be open to it. But it's not like a complete uphill battle at, at the same time too. I mean, when I had that cicada dinner, you know, at my farm, mm-hmm. we had hundreds of people show up, mm-hmm. you know, to eat uh, to eat an insect. And not only that, uh, uh, the culture of food has been transforming. You know. Uh, since as long as we've been eating you know and quickly so not too long ago um you know in the turn of the last century bars were uh, couldn't give away enough uh you know uh beluga caviar from the hudson or, and people didn't want to eat lobsters you know mm-hmm. uh, um
3: prisoners were complaining about eating lobster so um i got news for you my parents generation did not eat sushi and the idea of it would have really bothered them you know raw fish mm-hmm. why would you eat raw fish um so mm-hmm. so yeah it's it, it is it's what you get used to, in addition to what you are used to. Let me grab a quick call from Jim in Springfield. Hi, Jim.
2: Hi, Colin. How you doing? Good. Good. I wanted to make a couple comments to tie in in different ways to what you're speaking about. Uh, the notion of the other, I thought that you made was interesting, and something that I learned in my anthropology class more than 30 years ago is is the way in which even uh, body excretions from the human body, pretty much everybody is grossed out by one or the other of them. And pretty much they're all universally reviled from you know earwax to mucus to urine and everything else, except for tears. And um, the other thing that I wanted to say was uh, the way in which um, humans drink the milk of another mammal. We have uh, no problem with drinking uh, cow's milk. Or the milk of a goat, and I believe that in certain other cultures, it's very it's frowned upon or it's disgusting to drink the milk of another animal. Yet humans um, drink um, breast milk as very young young people, uh, but then um, some people are disgusted at the sight of a woman breastfeeding her own child.
3: Right. Uh, so and nobody
2: the- would think it's appropriate to drink for an adult to then drink breast milk.
3: So um, I'm going to ask both both Paul and Christina a little bit uh, about that because um, in in a way um, Christina he's talking about the taboo that you are exploring, which is that you know there's like I might be pretty comfortable eating a a bug, an insect uh, at uh, Bun's place. I would eat almost anything that Bun I I have eaten everything that Bun has ever served me that came from other animals. I I might get a little more squeamish if it came from a Person, you know this idea of bacteria coming from somebody's belly button or armpit or something—I um, I don't know. Like I'm something—I'm having a little problem right now, and I, I assume that's there in the work you're doing, right? It's—it's it's like we freak ourselves out more than maybe some other things freak us out.
5: Yeah, I think we want to kind of challenge that. That uh, that idea of disgust—that why why and and ask why we are disgusted about it—I think it's also really like easy for us to. Tell kind of just those stories about like univer- things that we find universally disgusting, um, but I don't think there is actually anything that is universally disgusting. Uh, you know, there are other there are other kinds of fermented foods that are made by chewing and spitting out the uh, you know corn and then making that into a drink. Uh, so like there are there are already across many different cultures fermented foods that incorporate bodily secretions as part of the the recipe, um, and those are totally normal in other parts of the out uh, of the world uh, so I think that you know it's easy for us to say like oh there this is universally disgusting and therefore somehow like you know part of our humanness uh, and evolutionarily adaptive but I think when you dig in deeper and, and try to really think about uh, well looking deeper at the different things that people are eating around the world and thinking more deeply about what it is that is disgusting about it uh, and you know why is bacteria from your toes gross but bacteria and cheese not gross um, so challenging ourselves to kind of think more deeply about, about why we feel disgusted.
3: That is exactly what we were trying to do here today. So thank you so much. That was beautifully put. So, Paul Rosen, um, I'm assuming that you agree with Jim, the caller from Springfield, that tears are just about the only thing that, you could, that could come out of the body that really seems pure and nice and don't bother anybody. And, and as he pointed out, that we do drink milk from the body, but we also drink it from other animals.
4: Yeah. Jim has a lot of insight into disgust. A number of anthropologists have pointed out that tears are, are special. We don't quite know why, but generally bodily products, particularly of humans are disgusting. So I, I think I would disagree with Christina, and only in the sense that it's probably true that uh, mammal and including human feces are universally disgusting. There may be some weird exceptions to it, but that's a very special, it's a very special. Now, for example, uh, she's right in general one very clear example of this is lovers uh romantic lovers uh, exchange body fluids they exchange saliva right when they kiss and they may exchange uh, vaginal secretions and uh, and, the spur- and semen i mean so those are things that are generally considered disgusting by from, from other people but there's a special other person who from whom they become attractive very often and not for everybody. And so it is true that almost anything can be become acceptable under the right conditions. And nobody has done a study, really, of how a, a normally disgusting thing becomes a positive thing, not just tolerable for, um, for people who are in a romantic relation. So that's a very striking inversion. But I should say, by the way, that little kids don't find anything disgusting, including feces. Right. Well, like 2-year-olds.
3: Yeah. Eat little fish. little. Yeah.
4: Yes, and they also will eat all kinds of insects. So, disgust is
3: acquired. It's learned, yeah. All right.
4: And so therefore it's more, you know, it's more malleable.
3: All right. We're going to say uh, goodbye to Christina and her cheese uh, when we come back. Bun and Paul, we've got a couple of other things, I think really important things, important things maybe even for the future of the planet that we need to talk about. So, let's talk about this. Fish
2: heads,
0: fish heads, fish heads. eat them up young. Fish
2: heads, fish heads, roly fish heads, fish heads,
4: fish heads, fish heads them up, yum! In the morning, laughing happy fish heads, in the evening, floating in the soup.
0: You know what part of human armpit bacteria cheese disgusts me? the cheese part although the milky curds of mariska hargitay armpit mozzarella would be i can't talk about it is it hot in here today's show was produced by betsy Kaplan and me Kyone wolf sarah flarity and stephanie reef are our interns greg hill tweets for us at wnpr colin and appeared in our intro along with hong kong voice actor alan yu the part of bill curry was played by anthony bourdain for show pages, articles, and videos of the here and now staff eating embryonic baby ducks, go to our website, wnpr.org slash Colin. On tomorrow's show, the nose immerses itself in making a murderer. And now, back to Colin.
3: So, two quick things. Once again, thanks to Alan You, This was his idea, I'll Betsy Kaplan, of course, made it come alive for us. And then, uh, you know, you've probably been listening to Bun Lai on this show and thinking, wow, he sounds so cool. How do you get to be so cool? Well, one way was he was a part of a freshly squeezed panel at Watkinson School a few years ago. We're doing another one on Wednesday night, next Wednesday night, January 13th. And, you know, it's sort of you get seasonal affective disorder. It's dark. It's unpleasant. Uh, and so we're going to cheer you up. We're going to do, sh- do a show about humor. We're going to do a, disc- a conversation about humor with improv queen uh, Julia Pastel. Uh, and a playwright and a stand-up comedian. We're also going to have improv performers there with us, occasionally interrupting what we do. We're going to talk specifically about whether Connecticut and New England are especially difficult places to have humor and to have comedies or anything essentially funny or unfunny about us. So go to the Watkinson.org website. Look for the freshly squeezed thing. You can order your tickets. There's a lovely meal beforehand. We'd love to have you join us for this delicious buffet dinner that we do. And you can be cool, just like Bun Lai. Bun Lai is, of course, uh, the chef at uh, Mia Souza in New Haven, and he's an an international leader in the kind of rethinking of food. Paul Rosin is also with us, Professor Emeritus of Psychology at the University of Pennsylvania. He is a former editor of the journal Appetite. Uh, So we've been talking about sort of what's disgusting, what's not disgusting. And so one thing that's been happening is that we've been exposed. I mean, the world got smaller, right? The world got smaller because of digital life, because of travel, because of a lot of things. And and suddenly we see these TV shows uh, involving Anthony Bort dean or this guy here andrew zimmern in the moroccan city of fez a meal made with spoiled camel meat and rancid goat butter is a
1: family favorite my friends at the u.s embassy asked their major domo mr radati to take me to the market this is smen it's cultured
4: turned
3: butter made from the milk of goats
4: it smells like a dead animal
3: Um, And we are getting a tweet from Randall in China. I tried hot donkey sandwich, pigeon eggs, chicken claws and pig stomach. So, you know, there's a kind of delight, Paul Rosen, in the voice uh, of Andrew as he's talking about these things. And it gets back to something that you were saying, that there is an approach avoidance uh, dualism about all this, that the things that disgust us also excite us. What if I or somebody vicariously ate that thing? So what's that all about? Well, that's a. a special case of a very
4: general human tendency, which we have called benign masochism. That is, it's coming to enjoy things that your body says you shouldn't enjoy. The best easy example is a roller coaster, right? Your body is saying, you're it's all aroused. Your body at some level thinks you're crashing to your death and you know that you're not, mm-hmm. right? You know you're safe. And there's some enjoyment you get out of being smarter than your body so eating something disgusting that you will know is really not harmful and may have some really good properties is some of the same quality it's, it's it's also why do we go to sad movies we do all sorts of things we eat bitter foods that are innately negative and like them so uh the, what's what's going on here is that this is uniquely human as far as i know we come to get pleasure out of enjoying what our body says we should avoid
3: Right, there's a tremendous amount of um, material out there, even including a, a whole separate cookbook about how to prepare and consume human placenta, and there are all kinds of great cosmic mother, earth mother a- ideas mm-hmm. about this. But there's also a kind of thrill-seeking, the kind of thrill-seeking that you're talking about right now. This is yeah, it's a this, thrill-seeking. This thing. is as close to legitimate cannibalism as I can possibly do. Uh, I'm going to do this thing that seems absolutely forbidden. But you know, before we run out of run out of, run out of time, Bun, there's something we've been alluding to here, but it's important to say it uh, uh, out loud, which is some of this stuff we've got to get over as a just as a matter of survival uh, in terms of what the food resources are going to be in an expanding population uh, a, cl- uh, a planet that's going through climate change I mean it's possible to take sewage water and purify it enough to drink um, we may have to get over some of the thinking that we have about it or the way that we're wired about it bun and I'm assuming that's part of what your mission is
1: Yeah, you know, uh, and I I think of it in the context of what we're talking about, which is, like, being grossed out and repulsed. Mm -hmm. So I think it's, like, one of these things where, like, um, and I was pointing back to what Paul was talking about and uh, being all right about eating a steak but not eating the cow, Mm -hmm. you know, and that we have this moral repulsion uh, to killing mammals because we love mammals. Like, we love our dogs and cats. They're family members and best friends to us. So – Our ethics and our values, a value for life, uh, is is not in line uh, with our taste preferences. And I kind of feel like we should actually go with this repulsion of of animals because now we look at all the data. The World Health Organization classified red meat and processed food recently as a class one carcinogen, right, along with cigarettes. We also know that the consumption of red meat has... um, a bigger impact on climate change than the whole uh, transportation sector.
3: Mm-hmm. Right. we got to rethink this whole thing. And, and, and Paul Rosen, similarly, we, there are going to be water shortages. There already are water shortages. So toilet to tap is maybe not a terrible idea until you tell people that you might want to do it.
4: Well, to- I've actually worked on toilet to tap. That is why people have a disgust response to recycled water. That is water that is directly processed from sewage into drinkable, very drinkable, very good water. And, again, what's happening, as what will happen, in, unfortunately, in the long run with insects and the problems with eating meat, is that things get so bad that somebody has to do something. So in the American Southwest, the water shortage is so bad that people, people's resistance to recycled water is dropping because, you know, they're going to have to make too many sacrifices to um, t- to avoid it, and this is what's what we're heading toward in the world climate crisis. So uh, cutting uh, and the anticipation of that, as Bun says, cutting down on uh, meat intake will be good for certainly good for the environment and for most people. Think not all good for health too. So you know, but when the climate thing gets really bad, uh, we have to do something. And the idea is to try to do those things before it's a catastrophe, Mm -hmm. to anticipate a catastrophe rather than to wait for it to happen.
3: Great point. Great point to end on. Thanks so much to Bun Lai and Paul Rosen. I'll quickly say too, I wish we had more time for this, but you know, uh, President Obama in one of his memoirs talked about being a boy in Indonesia and trying dog, and he's occasionally taunted about that by Republican opponents. But the point he's making is, I was there, I was a boy, I tried to learn about how they live. And there's that whole other part of the other, the capital O, other, that we don't like these people and they eat things that we would never eat. And in some ways, getting, it doesn't mean you're going to go home and eat your Portuguese water dog. It just means, yeah, you're going to try what they eat as a way to get to know them. There's sort of a world peace element in there somewhere. Thanks. Bon
2: Wolfie, we're ordering takeout. You want some?
0: Oh cool. Yeah, I'll have the um the placenta smoothie, a soft-boiled fetal duck, and a small order of the jellied moose nose. Okay. Oh, with extra onions. Ugh, onions. That's disgusting.